Mutability. Welcome to Nature's Lead. This is a podcast available at naturesleed.com. And this is another Open Valley. This is Open Valley 3, The Sonnet. First, I'd like to say sorry for the somewhat absence of frequent episodes these uh, past few months. I've um, uh, had a lot of other things going on and haven't uh, had the time to devote enough time to the podcast, not as much as I'd like. And I want to thank you for staying with me and uh, do want to say that I'm going to try to become uh, more consistent as before uh, with the release of new episodes. The sonnet is probably the most popular poetic form of all time, because for large amounts of periods of history, it was the standard, or it was the most commonly used form of poetry. It has a long history, and there are essentially two different forms of sonnets, and I'll talk about those, and I'll give you an example of each. But first, I just want to talk about poetry in general for you to be able to appreciate the sonnet more. Poetry in general is the medium that for a very long time was the number one medium for higher thinking and higher minds that were trying to create these great works and great thoughts. And and poetry was considered the highest form of, of that communication. So when we look back, we have to discard our lenses and, and our filters the way we see poetry today and try to look at it the way they would look at it back then. Today, a, a great work would be in a novel, but the novel as a form didn't come about or really wasn't popularized till the 1800s. Before that, there were essays and there was prose in different forms, but uh, the greatest works of different eras would not necessarily be in prose and they would not necessarily be considered to be put into something such as a novel. So some of our greatest works before the 1800s and even in the early 1800s are in the form of poetry. And within poetry, the sonnet was a very dominant form. And the sonnet has this really tight structure to it. It's, it's a very tight mechanical structure. And perhaps that is what attracts me to it, is the fact that the sonnet has uh, this melding of art and structure. And this really gets to the larger question, obviously, in, in art of how much structure do you have, how much tra- tradition and uh, historical guidelines do you incorporate into the art, and then uh, how much of it is purely freeform. And in modern days, we've gone more to the freeform. We've gotten more and more away from structure in, in visual art, in uh, music, in, in all kinds of different forms. Uh, structure has been redefined and tradition has been cast away. Now, this is a natural, I'm not criticizing it, this is a natural evolution of art. But there is something in me that appreciates the traditional structure of some of these artistic forms. I like the classical music structures and prefer a lot of those over uh, some of the more avant-garde and atonal and some of the other paths that modern music has taken. And I like the Impressionists and art 
before that time, before we got into Cubism and Picasso and some of the more modern tangents that, uh, well, I guess tangent is being judgmental right there by calling it a tangent, but essentially these other paths of art that have evolved in the 20th century. So the sonnet, for me, I, I like seeing structure and then seeing what people do with that basic underlying structure. The sonnet has the basic purpose of presenting a problem and then supplying a resolution. It's very similar to the essays we all experienced in high school or even in college. The When I was in high school, one of the patterns we used was called the five-paragraph essay. This essentially was an introduction, introductory paragraph. In that paragraph, the middle three sentences would be the outline sentences that would be the the subjects of the middle three paragraphs, so then you do the body of the essay, the middle three paragraphs would each define the initial statement stated in each of the three sentences in the middle of the first paragraph. You'd write out those three paragraphs, and then the fifth paragraph would be a resolution. It was very uh, antiseptic, very boring, <laughs> very uh, scientific, but that basic structure allowed you to quickly get into the creating process and and be able to dive in and start to work with that structure to create a very powerful essay. Now, I'm not that into essays, and I'm not, <laughs> not uh, promoting that structure, but that structure uh, was really helpful for me to be able to produce a lot of material. And the sonnet, I feel, is the same type of thing. It's something for a poet to be able to jump right in on the ground running and start producing some wonderful poetry. It's something that's accepted and been proven out, so you're working with a form and structure that has been proven over time and is acceptable and fits in well with, with the human experience and how we experience ideas and thoughts. So let me talk about two of the most popular sonnet forms. There's various ones, but these two by far uh, are the most popular. I'll start with the most popular, and this is the one that is, is the most common historically, and that is the Petrarchan sonnet or the Italian sonnet. Both forms have names that are patterned after one of the most popular implementers, and this one by Petrarch uh, is named Petrarchan sonnet. This one is very tight and a little bit more complicated than the second one I'm going to talk about. But both of these sonnets have, have something in common. There are essentially eight lines that expand, introduce a certain problem, and then expand on that problem, and in a way climax to the ninth line. And the ninth line is a turn, or volta, which moves into the resolution of the final six lines. Now, the second one I'm going to introduce is the basic same idea. It works up, it progresses through a problem, and then comes to a resolution in the last few lines. And most sonnets have this idea. Now, sonnets we also think of often is tied to love or, or romantic love in that way. And sonnets don't traditionally. They're not always in that form. Sometimes they're used that way, but they're actually most of my favorite sonnets aren't used in that way. So that's, that's just one subject matter, but they're used for all types of different ideas and thoughts. So we've progressed through eight lines to this point we call the turn, or the volta. Now I'll get back to the turn in a second, and I'll use an example in, in one work by Wordsworth. 
But first, let me tell you about the first eight lines. The first eight lines in a Petrarchan sonnet are divided into two groups of four, and they're called quatrains. The whole entire eight-line segment is often called an octave, but the two quatrains have a discernible rhyme scheme that repeats in each quatrain, and essentially goes A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. All that means is it's just a way to tell which lines rhyme with which. So the first line of the first quatrain rhymes with the fourth line. That's why it's A, B, B, A. The, a, the two A's are line one and, and lines one and lines four. Those two rhyme, and then lines two and three rhyme, the B and the B. Now this pattern repeats for the second quatrain. So it's A, B, B, A, then A, B, B, A again. And that's how the first eight lines are rhymed. And each quatrain, each set of four lines, in a way is a grouped subject. So oftentimes you'll see the first four lines introduce a problem and the next four lines expand on that problem. So they're kind of grouped together, kind of like a paragraph would be in, a, in an essay. And after those eight lines, as, as you've developed this problem, then comes that turn, or volta, in the ninth line. And this is a line that is, is, moves towards resolution. It's somewhat of a, either a climax or it's a turn in thought or something that moves us to those last six lines where we're going to hear the resolution. And then in the last six lines, there are many different rhyme schemes. I'll just give you one or two. Uh, the six lines could be ABC, ABC, or they could be AB, AB, AB. Uh, ABC, ABC obviously means that the in that sestet, that's those six lines, that the first line rhymes with the fourth, the second with the fifth, and the third with the sixth. Or if it's obviously A, B, A, B, A, B, you get the picture. It's three rhyming lines spread out over six. So you have this turn in the ninth line, and the ninth through fourteenth are these six lines of resolution coming to a point. So overall, you have 14 lines in the sonnet in the traditional in most sonnets, even modern sonnets, a lot of free verse sonnets, they're, they're usually 14 lines, even if they're unrhymed. And the other kind of sonnet I was going to introduce to you is the Shakespearean sonnet. Shakespeare wrote endless amount of sonnets along with his uh, numerous plays. So he was very prolific, and, and I've read one of his sonnets before, and I'm going to read that to you again. So the Shakespearean sonnet is much simpler than the Petrarchan sonnet. It's much more basic. It has a rhyme scheme of A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, and then G, G at the very end. So you basically have three quatrains of the first and, and third lines rhyming and the second and fourth lines rhyming. So A, B, A, B. And you just repeat that for three quatrains with a new, with a new rhyme. And so you do that, if you have three quatrains, obviously that's 12 lines. That's 12 lines, you only need two more lines. And that last couplet is the resolution. So the resolution is moved back somewhat to the last two lines, and you have eight lines to develop upon this idea. And you may see then, in the final quatrain, you may see uh, turn moving towards that resolution in the last two lines. It's a different take on the sonnet, and it's not as popular as the Petrarchan, but it's very good. So you still have a turn at the ninth line, but you work towards this couplet at the end that has this finality to it, this final resolution. So it's a nice twist on the traditional sonnet. So I'll read you one of each, and I'll point out the turns or 
sometimes called the volta. So you can better see the structure. To me, it's kind of fascinating. It's kind of like taking apart a clock, or it's like a Rubik's cube. It's a, it's the mechanism of these these little small little machines that that you're pulling apart the gears and the levers and and seeing how it's all working together. It's it's very intricate and and then done in such a short amount of time, or a short amount of space that it makes it fascinating to me how you can take such a small little tight engine and, and come up with so many different beautiful things. So here is one that I've read to you before. Uh, at least I'm pretty sure I've read the entire thing to you. This is one of my favorite poems uh, by Wordsworth called The World is Too Much With Us. And I do want to say also, before I forget, that some of the people who have written sonnets, just as a reference, are people like Milton, and even all the way to modern times of Frost, you have all the romantics. So here's Wordsworth's sonnet. The world is too much with us late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. The sea that bears her bosom to the moon. The winds that will be howling at all hours and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan, suckled in a creed outworn, so might I, standing on this pleasant lea, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. I'll point out to you that lines one and four, soon and boon, rhyme. Two and three rhyme, powers and hours. So that's your first ABBA quatrain. And then the next one is a quatrain of a similar rhyme scheme. Moon, and then hours, flowers, and then tune. And then you come to the ninth line, which is the turn for the whole idea. And that's the line where he says, it moves us not. Great God and great God has exclamation point after it and it's it's a it's a big statement and that's where he starts turning to say that he'd rather be this than to be with that and it's a turn in the idea and it's a turn towards the resolution so it's kind of in in a way it's the climax of the of the poem a climatic moment now let me read you Shakespeare's sonnet which I read to you recently which is Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, which is one of his most famous poems, as I've iterated before. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines, By chance, or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, Nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, When in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. So again, I'll point out in this poem, you'll see that in the first four lines, it goes day, temperate, may, date. 
which is basically AB, AB. And then it goes shined, or excuse me, shines, dimmed, declines, untrimmed. CD, CD. And that goes on until the last lines, the last two lines, the final couplet, C and the. Now the turn in this poem, again, is in the ninth line. It's important to remember. That's a key point in the sonnet when something is is identified or, or a resolution is imminent. In this one, it is where he says, But thy eternal summer shall not fade. That's a very strong line. He's building up to that in eight lines. And then in that ninth line, But thy eternal summer shall not fade. That's a strong statement. So it's a wonderful part of the sonnet. And it's where you're getting really to the meat of what he's trying to say. So I'm going to stop there. There's all kinds of other information that I could be talking about. For instance, iambic pentameter is inherent in the Petrarchan tradition as well as Shakespeare, his plays, and and I'll definitely talk about that, probably do that in an open valley. The iambic pentameter is fascinating, and it deals with the accents of words and lines, and it's, it's amazing when you add that layer on top of the layer of the rhyme schemes and the tight structure of a sonnet. When you add all those things together as basic rules that you have to follow, it's amazing what people are able to come up with with a tight mechanical guideline. That brings us to a close. So until next time, I wish you well, and don't forget to follow nature's lead.